This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. At a quiet nursing home in the small city of Woodstock, Canada, 88-year-old dementia patient Clotilda Adriano was resting in bed. It was an early summer evening in 2007. Clotilda looked up to see the new night nurse arrive with her medical cart. The nurse was an overweight woman with small glasses. She greeted Clotilda enthusiastically before removing a needle from its packaging. She said with a smile, the doctor wants you to have a vitamin shot. Clotilda sighed and held out her arm. She'd been at Caressant Care since March and was used to being poked and prodded. She looked away as the nurse jabbed the needle in. If Clotilda hadn't averted her eyes, she might have noticed the nurse's odd expression. She was still smiling slightly, yet her eyes were coldly curious as she inserted the needle into Clotilda's vein. All done, the nurse cheerfully exclaimed. She packed up her things and left. Clotilda watched her go, unnerved, but not entirely sure why. A few hours later, Clotilda began to weaken. She became cold and clammy. Another nurse entered for a routine check and noticed Clotilda's symptoms. Because of Clotilda's history of diabetes, the nurse hurried to treat her for low blood sugar. Though neither knew it, the vitamin shot the nurse had given her was actually a large dose of insulin. In a diabetic like Clotilda, it could have been fatal. Luckily, Clotilda survived the incident. But unfortunately, for the many victims that would come after her, she forgot all about the cheerful nurse that had visited her earlier that evening. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. 
This is Serial Killers, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Serial Killers for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. Today, we're going to examine the early life of the lethal Canadian nurse, Elizabeth Wetlofer. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Between 2007 and 2016, Elizabeth Wetlofer killed eight elderly residents of the long-term care home where she worked as a night nurse, making her one of the most prolific killers in Canadian history. This week, we'll cover Elizabeth's religious upbringing and conflicted sexuality. We'll explore how her troubles led to depression and anger issues. We'll also touch on how these issues caused her to begin harming those too helpless to fend for themselves. Next week, we'll dive further into Elizabeth's quiet killing spree, which went undetected until she confessed it herself. Elizabeth May Parker was born on June 10, 1967, to Doug and Hazel Parker in Woodstock, Ontario. Elizabeth, nicknamed Beth, was their second child and had one brother three years her senior. The Parker family was extremely religious. Doug, an elder at the local Baptist church, was strict and demanding. He required a submissive wife and children who adhered to the church's teachings. Neighbors saw the Parkers as the perfect leave-it-to-beaver family. Despite a rigid upbringing, Elizabeth loved the church and was close to her family. But when she hit adolescence, her faith in church doctrine was tested. She realized she was attracted to women. Doug and Hazel believed being gay was a sin. Though there's little information on Elizabeth's formative years, they likely didn't welcome Elizabeth's sexuality and saw it as an intrusion into their perfect family. Elizabeth kept this side of herself secret for as long as possible. It's very likely that her rejection of her own sexual identity caused her a great deal of guilt and self-loathing throughout her childhood. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to psychiatric author and professor Jack Drescher, those who are unable to acknowledge their sexual identity often attempt to dissociate those feelings from themselves. They consider these feelings unacceptable and therefore hide that part of themselves from the persona they present to the world. This negatively impacts their self-esteem and makes it difficult to see themselves in their entirety. By refusing to identify herself as a lesbian, Elizabeth was unable to develop an understanding of who she was. Elizabeth's insecurities were only exacerbated at school, where she was shy, awkward, and overweight. Her childhood neighbor, Glenn Hart, said that she was often the odd kid out. 
Elizabeth tried to combat this sense of isolation by participating in a number of extracurricular activities. When she got to Huron Park Secondary School, she played field hockey and joined the band as a trombonist. But despite her best efforts, it seemed Elizabeth still struggled with fitting in. In 1986, 19-year-old Elizabeth wrote a poem that was published in her high school yearbook. A line read, Each person's tune changes as he or she grows older, but it's all the same and inevitably pointless. This could be read as Elizabeth expressing her own fears about her future, where she'd have to continue suppressing the side of her identity she was ashamed of. Luckily for Elizabeth, she was given a chance for a fresh start when she started college in 1987. She studied journalism for three years before transferring to London Baptist Bible College to study religious education counseling. It's not clear precisely why she changed career paths, but it's possible her father had something to do with it. According to the article Seeing Red, Elizabeth's father, Doug, also started to take courses at London Baptist Bible College, likely as a way to keep watch over Elizabeth. The timing suggests Elizabeth may have been exploring her sexuality while at her previous school, and her father had somehow found out. His worries were confirmed when, after Elizabeth enrolled at London Baptist, Doug was informed Elizabeth had been seen at a gay-friendly church with another woman as her date. In response, he made her move back home temporarily. In the same article, her childhood neighbor, Glenn Hart, remembers that Elizabeth was contrite after she returned to Woodstock. She told Hart she had sinned and asked him to pray for her. Elizabeth was determined to redeem herself. She made a deal with her father. She could return to school, but she'd have to undergo conversion therapy first. Though there's no record of her experiences in conversion therapy, it appears she did as she was told. Because by 1991, she was back at the Bible College to complete her bachelor's degree. In a study conducted by the American Psychological Association, results demonstrated that not only is conversion therapy ineffective, it can cause significant harm and rejection of one's identity. This rejection can lead to anxiety, depression, drug use, and suicide. However, the repercussions of this experience weren't immediately obvious as Elizabeth turned her energy to her future career. After graduating from London Baptist Bible College in 1991, Elizabeth wasn't excited about the job prospects offered by her degree in religious counseling. It's possible that she only got the degree to make her father happy. She changed disciplines again to enroll at Conestoga College's three-year nursing program in 1992. Elizabeth loved nursing. By 1995, she had graduated from Conestoga and was registered with the College of Nurses in Ontario. Through them, she got her first job as the night nurse at Geraldton District Hospital. Geraldton was a small town 16 hours northwest of Woodstock. Not only was it far from home, it was extremely isolated. The city was a flat cluster of homes and businesses surrounded by the thick Canadian forest. It was hot in the summer and brutally cold in the winter. 
The remote locale of this job only exacerbated Elizabeth's solitude. University of Chicago senior research scientist Louise Hawkley points out that loneliness can lead to a myriad of health issues, such as poor sleep, depression, obesity, and cognitive decline. It can also impair one's sense of control, which in turn can cause feelings of helplessness. Elizabeth sought to reclaim control by self-medicating. She became a heavy drinker and sank into a depression. When alcohol wasn't enough, Elizabeth attempted to find something stronger. On September 12, 1995, a member of the nursing staff at Geraldton District Hospital saw 28-year-old Elizabeth stumble out of a bathroom looking dazed. Before her colleague could say anything, Elizabeth collapsed. Elizabeth's concerned co-worker took her to a patient room where she was examined by the staff health nurse. Elizabeth's pupils were small and her speech was slurred. A physician was called to examine her further. When initially questioned about what happened, Elizabeth denied taking any medication, but eventually she admitted to stealing lorazepam, a sedative used to treat anxiety, from the hospital's medicine cabinet. However, the amount she confessed to taking changed with each person she spoke to. To some colleagues, she mentioned that she took just two pills to dull the edge. To others, she said it was more like four pills. But according to an article in Canada's The Star, she eventually admitted it was 25 pills and that her goal was to end her life. It's possible that she initially lied because she was embarrassed about others knowing how depressed she was. Psychologist Mary Lamia notes that shame can be defined as a deterioration of your self-worth. Since Elizabeth already seemed to hold herself in low regard, one can imagine she was brought even lower after this. Lamia notes that shame is a known trigger of rage, which would continue to build in Elizabeth in the ensuing years. After an internal investigation, Elizabeth was fired on October 13, 1995. She returned to Woodstock. Once back home, Elizabeth filed a grievance with Geraldton, claiming that the incident was the result of her depression. Her actions were therefore related to a health issue and should be treated accordingly. While Elizabeth waited for a response from Geraldton, she was able to find employment in Woodstock. In June 1996, she began working at a group home called Christian Horizons that served people with disabilities. She didn't mention her previous employment at Geraldton as her complaint against them was still under review. She was hired on at Christian Horizons as a personal support worker. A personal support worker differs from a nurse in that there is no governing body that monitors the profession. Personal support workers, or PSWs, therefore typically work under a registered nurse. A few months later, on November 15, 1996, Geraldton settled Elizabeth's grievance. They would remove the incident and the firing from her record and amend her personnel file to say that she resigned for health reasons. A byproduct of this decision was that any future employer contacting Geraldton for a reference wouldn't be made aware of the theft. With her career back on track, Elizabeth focused on her personal life. It's possible that she was still looking to prove to her family that she was no longer attracted to women. Elizabeth might have thought that marrying a man would be a sufficient way to convince them and herself 
that she was on the right path. She met local truck driver Daniel Wetlaufer at church in 1996, and shortly afterward, the two began to date. There's not much information about Daniel or their relationship, but they both seemed to be in a hurry to get married. They tied the knot the following year and moved into a home on Winniet Street in Woodstock. The union was no doubt reassuring to Elizabeth's traditional family, but being married to a man meant Elizabeth had to continue living a lie. Elizabeth continued to use alcohol to numb her own lingering doubts. Like before, her drinking seemed to affect her work. After a series of medication errors that resulted in a brief suspension, Christian Horizons notified the College of Nurses that Elizabeth had an alcohol dependency. The college imposed restrictions on her nursing license, which required Elizabeth to submit to random urine samples, attend Bible study meetings, and remain alcohol and drug-free. This may have been a wake-up call for Elizabeth because she made it through the next year without incident. In May 1998, her license was restored fully. Evidence of these restrictions would only remain on Elizabeth's record for six years. Further performance reviews from Elizabeth's time at Christian Horizons showed that, despite the rough start, she grew into a model employee. She became adept at teamwork and was known for her honesty, communication, and good humor. One co-worker noted that she was friendly and kind and was quoted saying, she was great with residents. I've never seen her not be nice to anybody. But this cheerful and well-meaning version of Elizabeth was a front. Just like she had with her parents, she was merely pretending to be happy with her life. In 2006, after almost 10 years of marriage, Elizabeth decided she was unable to hide her attraction to women any longer. She began a double life, chatting online with women she met on the website Gay Canada. Elizabeth's inner conflict heightened her depression. In the summer of 2006, she took a two-week leave of absence from work and checked into a psychiatric hospital. She wanted to get a handle on her depression and overwhelming anxiety. She later claimed the psychiatrist she saw during this period was unsympathetic. Even so, she saw him dutifully once a month after leaving the hospital. This psychiatrist diagnosed Elizabeth with borderline personality disorder. Borderline personality disorder, as defined by the Mayo Clinic, is a mental health disorder that impacts the way you think about yourself and others, characterized by difficulties with emotional regulation. Some symptoms are fear of abandonment, inappropriate anger, risky behavior, and impulsiveness. It's also important to note that the Mayo Clinic specifies that some people living with BPD may experience periods of stress-related paranoia and loss of contact with reality lasting from a few minutes to a few hours. Elizabeth was prescribed medication and was optimistic she'd begin to feel more in control. Though Elizabeth was trying to get help for her illness, it was too late to save her marriage. In February of 2007, Daniel found out about one of her online relationships and left her. According to Elizabeth, she was furious that Daniel left. She was ashamed of her inability to suppress her attraction to women and equally livid that the life she'd built was falling apart. 
Elizabeth's rage over the divorce was like something she'd never felt before. She later said, I was so angry, and it was like a voice said inside me saying, I'll use you, don't worry about it. Elizabeth was taking medication to treat her BPD at this time, which was meant to reduce symptoms like severe emotional swings or even hallucinations. But that didn't stop her from coming to a troubling conclusion. Elizabeth interpreted this voice as God, telling her that she was meant for a greater purpose. But what it told her to do made it sound more like the devil. Coming up, we'll reveal how this sinister voice drives Elizabeth to stand over her first victim, needle in hand. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 2007, 40-year-old Elizabeth Wetlaufer and her husband Daniel separated after 10 years of marriage. Angry and alone, Elizabeth was desperate for some guidance. She finally found it in a relationship with a woman. Her new partner, who Elizabeth referred to as Maureen, moved in with Elizabeth around late 2007. They lived together in the small town of Woodstock, Ontario. There's little information on Maureen, but it seems her line of work didn't earn very much money. In order to provide for them both, Elizabeth got a new job at Caressant Care, a senior rehabilitation and physiotherapy facility. She'd finally be working as a nurse again, after 10 years as a personal support worker. Her pay would be $60,000 a year, more than she had ever made before. But despite these promising developments, Elizabeth felt more pressure than ever. She was now a provider, and though she'd started to embrace her sexuality, her parents still refused to accept it. Hazel, Elizabeth's mother, referred to Maureen as Elizabeth's roommate. At the time Elizabeth started at Caressant Care on June 25, 2007, she was already overwhelmed. She later said, I was finding it hard to handle things emotionally. She found her new job to be exceptionally difficult. As the only registered nurse on duty during the night shift, Elizabeth was in charge of eight personal support workers and responsible for the care of 32 patients. Elizabeth's shift was typically from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., but she'd sometimes pick up double shifts that started at 3 p.m. At the start of each shift, she'd count the medication to be administered, and she did the same at the end of her shift. Elizabeth was keenly aware of how unsupervised her medical cart was. She was the highest-ranking employee on the floor during her shifts and therefore had a large amount of power. Almost from the start, she siphoned off medication, feeding laxatives to patients instead of their pills, which she'd pocket. What started as a way to combat the stress she was experiencing soon became a habit. While acquiring opioids was tricky, she noticed that insulin wasn't kept track of at all. 
Insulin injection is a common treatment for those suffering from diabetes, and in a home with a lot of elderly patients, it was needed often. Insulin stabilizes blood sugar, and in healthy people, it's produced by the pancreas as needed to keep blood sugar levels stable. If someone is injected with insulin that doesn't need it, or the dose is too high, their blood sugar will drop below a normal range and cause hypoglycemia. Symptoms include sweating, dizziness, and weakness. If one's blood sugar lowers enough, it can be fatal. This is exactly what was on Elizabeth's mind when she arrived at the room of one of her elderly patients, Clotilda, in June of 2007. She'd later say, I didn't really want her to die. I just don't know. I was angry and had this sense inside me that she might be a person that God wanted back with him. Elizabeth claimed she was guided solely by her sinister urges and an unshakable feeling of purpose. As she gazed down at Clotilda, the anger she'd been experiencing since her divorce grew in her chest. But her hand was moved more by curiosity. She was seeing what it felt like to inflict harm and if she could get away with it. Elizabeth injected Clotilda with insulin and watched as the woman struggled to breathe. Eventually, some other nurses noticed Clotilda's hypoglycemic episode and treated her. They had no reason to suspect Elizabeth and assumed it had been caused by problems with her medication and diet. Elizabeth was emboldened and soon found another test subject. Clotilda's sister, Albina, was also a resident of Crescent Care. Albina was in her 80s and suffered from diabetes and dementia. Dementia would become Elizabeth's primary criteria for choosing her victims. Dementia patients weren't likely to remember a suspicious incident, and even if they did, it was unlikely they'd be believed. During an evening shift in October 2007, Elizabeth injected Albina with long-acting insulin. As indicated by the name, long-acting insulin lowers the blood sugar slowly. In total, the insulin works over the course of about four hours, while shorter-acting insulin can take as little as 15 minutes. Once Albina's symptoms took hold, she became disoriented. Elizabeth lingered to watch the show. It's not known how long Albina suffered, but eventually another nurse entered the room. From what we can piece together, it was most likely the nurse on the next shift. She recognized Albina's hypoglycemic symptoms and was able to treat her right away. Once again, no suspicion was thrown onto Elizabeth. Elizabeth claimed she felt compelled to harm her patients whenever she felt angry at the state of her life. She believed this anger was God speaking through her and telling her to act. Despite Elizabeth's assertions that she was acting in the name of God, she contradicted herself later on, admitting that she knew she wasn't helping her patients. It's possible that claiming to have a larger purpose from God gave her a sense of power and importance she'd never been able to cultivate in her personal life. And the feeling was addictive. Psychologist Dr. Linda Papadopoulos notes in the TV series Inside the Mind of a Serial Killer that in these moments, Elizabeth wasn't just acting as God's vessel. She was, in fact, playing God. Unfortunately for resident James Silcox, an 84-year-old World War II veteran, 
Elizabeth was done experimenting after Clotilda and Albina. She was ready to bring the full force of her newfound power. James was returning to caressant care after undergoing hip surgery on August 10th, and Elizabeth took an immediate dislike to him. He suffered from dementia and had recently had a stroke, but despite needing professional care, he seemed displeased to be in the hospital. He would refuse medication and demand to walk around without his walker. Nurses also complained James would touch them inappropriately. According to Elizabeth, he once touched her breast. She was also disgusted as James went on rants about his wife, calling her demeaning names. Her anger towards him filled her with purpose. Dr. Meher Sherma, who's extensively studied the development of serial killers, notes that killers often seek to dominate people similar to those who have previously dominated them. Elizabeth had just been rejected by her ex-husband and was perhaps triggered by James's rude assertions about his own wife. Therefore, it's possible that control over James offered Elizabeth something she'd been craving, a chance to regain her sense of self-worth. On August 11, 2007, Elizabeth was on a double shift. She arrived for work at 3 p.m. and went on her rounds. Although the exact trigger is unknown, at around 6 p.m., Elizabeth began to think about ending James's life. She later described this feeling. There was always that red surging that I identified with God talking to me. Then I'd go get the insulin. That night, she did just that. Around 9.30 p.m., Elizabeth slipped into the windowless storage room and opened the medical fridge. She reached inside and hastily grabbed a spare insulin needle. Elizabeth went into James's room, assuring him that the doctor was requesting he get a vitamin shot. James didn't think anything of it. Since she'd already practiced insulin dosage on Clotilda and Albina, Elizabeth knew just how much insulin would end James's life and how quickly. She injected him with 50 units of short-acting insulin. James didn't resist. As soon as it was over, Elizabeth felt an immediate release of pressure. She started to laugh, soon dissolving into a hysterical fit. But James didn't go quietly. Throughout the night, he struggled. He deliriously called out, I love you, and I'm sorry, repeatedly. Elizabeth assumed he was talking about his family. After nearly six hours of suffering, James passed away at 3.30 a.m. Elizabeth, ever the dutiful nurse, followed protocol. As the only nurse on duty, she checked for vital signs and listened for his heartbeat with her stethoscope for one minute. Once she was sure he was dead, she called the doctor on duty. When the doctor arrived, he examined James. Elizabeth waited with bated breath. She finally relaxed when the doctor pronounced him dead and suggested it must have been caused by an embolism from his recent hip surgery. James's family was called, and Elizabeth went about filling out the forms required after a patient passes away. One computerized form contained a series of questions with yes or no boxes beside them. If any box is checked yes, the coroner is to be notified and an examination of the body must be ordered. Elizabeth went down the list, checking no for each question. 
her mouse might have lingered on one in particular. Does anyone have a reason to believe this death was not natural? Elizabeth clicked no. Her control over the forms allowed her to sidestep detection. She believed the fact that she had gotten away with the murder was a sign from God. She was certain this was the work he had in mind when he'd spoken to her after Daniel left. When James's family arrived, Elizabeth was still on her shift. She offered them some comfort, repeating his last words, I love you. James's family thanked Elizabeth profusely. They felt nothing but gratitude for the nurse who sat by their dad's side, providing comfort in his last hours. They had no idea they were praising their father's murderer. When we come back, Elizabeth chooses her next victim, eager to get another taste of the release that came with killing. Now back to the story. In 2007, 40-year-old Elizabeth Wettlaufer was under a great deal of stress. Her responsibilities at work were overwhelming, and she had just separated from her husband. Additionally, she was in her first serious relationship with a woman. Though she was finally embracing her sexuality, her family refused to acknowledge that she was gay. The rush of harming someone else seemed to relieve her angst. After experimenting on two elderly sisters, she chose 84-year-old dementia patient James Silcox as her first kill in August of 2007. She injected James with a large dose of insulin, and he died within a few hours. Because James already had health complications, and because Elizabeth was in charge of filing the death report, her crime went undetected. After killing James, Elizabeth went home as if it was a normal night. She exercised, played some games on her computer, and went to sleep. Elizabeth claimed she felt awful over her horrible deed, but in the same breath contradicted herself by saying it was like a pressure had been relieved from me, like pressure had been relieved from my emotions. Even though Elizabeth had felt immense relief when she killed James, it seemed she still fought against these darker urges. Instead, she attempted to find other ways to release that pressure. According to homicide detective Brian Harris, who was interviewed on Inside the Mind of a Serial Killer, co-workers reported smelling alcohol on Elizabeth at times. She was once found passed out at the bottom of the stairs, but nothing was ever reported to her superiors. Harris refers to the lack of accountability that seemed to surround Elizabeth as the wall of silence. It should be noted that despite the lack of action taken after Elizabeth's infractions, there's a record of wrongdoing from her time at Crescent Care. Though no specific dates are listed, an article in The Globe and Mail notes Elizabeth was written up for things like leaving medication out, failing to sign out narcotics, administering eye drops incorrectly and failing to treat a patient whose blood level sugars had dropped. The last one, of course, could have been the result of attempted murder. Despite these concerning mistakes, Caressant Care never considered Elizabeth unfit to work there. This was possibly because Elizabeth had a tendency to admit to her errors and apologize sincerely. They saw her as a well-meaning, hard worker, and her apologies were enough. Elizabeth seemed well aware of how much she was able to get away with, and there was no reason to think that her luck would run out. 
Only two months later, Elizabeth singled out her next victim. Ontario mechanic Maurice Granat was 75 and was fondly referred to as Mo by his friends and family. Mo had prostate cancer and the prognosis wasn't good. He was dying, but despite his poor health, he was alert and relatively active. Because of this, he could be slightly difficult and according to Elizabeth was, quote, another one who liked to grab breasts and asses. On the afternoon of December 22, 2007, Elizabeth was working an earlier shift than normal, from 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. She rolled her medicine cart to the north wing of Caressant Care and steered it into a double room on the right side of the hallway. She greeted Mo, who lay in bed, and went about dispensing his medication. As she neared his bedside, Mo reached out and grabbed her breast. Her gaze was cold as she stared down at him. That familiar red surge built up in her once again. It's possible it was even more powerful this time. Elizabeth had gotten such immense relief from her prior kill, and after two months, she was no doubt searching for that feeling again. Neuroscientist James Fallon of the University of California, Irvine, is certain that the period between serial killers' murders triggers a similar feeling to drug addicts trying to stay clean. This withdrawal can cause a buildup of hormones in the brain's amygdala, and Fallon notes that the only way to alleviate this feeling is to go back to the addicting behavior. Elizabeth had been trying to soothe her withdrawal from killing by using drugs and alcohol, but killing was the real thing, and she needed another fix. After Mo had his supper, Elizabeth returned to his room around 5.30 p.m. This time, she was holding up her insulin needle, which she told him was a vitamin shot. Similar to Elizabeth's other victims, Mo was used to being injected with shots throughout the day, He sat still while Elizabeth's beady eyes scanned his body. Insulin needs to be injected into body fat, and Mo was so emaciated from his cancer that there was little left on his upper body. Elizabeth moved the sheets aside and lifted up his gown to reveal his thigh. It still had some meat on it. She stuck the needle in quickly and unleashed a lethal dose of insulin. Elizabeth eagerly sat back and stared at her victim as she felt that release of tension. Shortly after the injection, Mo's breathing accelerated and he began to sweat profusely. It's unclear how long Mo suffered before his symptoms were noticed by other staff. Once they were, he was moved to a room by the nurse's desk. Though he was clearly ill, Mo was hanging in there. Elizabeth anxiously eyed the clock. It was nearing 11 p.m., and her shift was coming to a close. If Mo passed away after she'd left, she wouldn't be able to control the death report. 11 p.m. came, and Mo was still breathing. Elizabeth reluctantly went home, not pleased to relinquish control over the situation. She worried that they'd find the site of the injection and start an investigation but no call came from the hospital, and she eventually relaxed. The next time she went to work, she inquired about Mo. She was told he'd passed away on the morning of December 23rd. Elizabeth eagerly pulled up the report the attending nurse had written up. 
She held her breath as she searched for anything in the report that could incriminate her. She read that Mo had gone into a coma in the early hours of the morning and passed away at 11.30 a.m. The cause of death listed was general disability and old age. Nothing in the report would arouse suspicion. Elizabeth stared at the forms, relieved, but conflicted. The logical part of her knew that killing was wrong, but it made her feel powerful and calmed her in a way that drugs and alcohol weren't able to. She told herself that this was evidence she was doing what God had intended. It's possible that once the initial good feeling of her killing passed, Elizabeth was faced with the reality of what she'd done. So she continued to justify it in a way that coincided with her religious beliefs. Whatever her motivations, Elizabeth suppressed her guilty conscience. She began feeling her next urge to kill in late 2008. It's possible that around this time, she was on the verge of breaking up with her partner, Maureen. Though Elizabeth never gave a specific time or reason for their split, she said that they were only together for a year. The timing makes sense, as it was around this time that Elizabeth chose her third victim. But doubt over what she was doing had crept in. She knew that killing was wrong, but was seduced over how great it made her feel. So Elizabeth decided to change her narrative. She'd continue to carry out God's plan, but this time, she was intent on using her red surge to single out a patient who needed her help, rather than one she just wanted to harm. This way, she could truly embody God's mission, while still getting that delicious relief that came with ending a life. Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. We'll be back Monday with a new episode. Next week, we'll follow Elizabeth as her addiction to killing spirals out of control. And she starts to wonder if she's being guided by God or if it's the devil fooling her. You can find more episodes of Serial Killers and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Serial Killers for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Serial Killers on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Have a killer week. Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Travis Clark. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Kate Murdoch and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 